we're going to look at the first chapter of John's Gospel. And I am going to read a few verses from it. So if you look at John chapter 1 and verse 9, John is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He talk, calls him the Word, and he calls him the light, the true light. So when he says the true light, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, I've given this message uh, a title which you might find rather strange. And the title is this, The Tragedy and Triumph of Christmas. Uh, technically, it ought to be the tragedy and triumph of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ becoming uh, a human being. But Christmas, I think, is a good shorthand for that. The tragedy and triumph of Christmas. Now, the tragedy of Christmas lies in the way the Lord Jesus Christ was rejected. Uh, we read there, don't we? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And, and I'm going to present the tragedy of Christmas, like a play in three acts. Uh, you, you, you know that in a, a theater, a play is put on, and, and they very often have three acts, and the scenery is changed between the acts. And I'm going to use that uh, analogy, that picture, to help us understand that the three things I'm going to say about the tragedy of Christmas are three separate things because a lot of commentators get them mixed up and therefore become very confused about the meaning of some of these things we're looking at. So the first act in the tragedy of Christmas is this, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now, the Greek word, translated world here, is a word we all know. 
You may know no Greek, but you know this word. It's the word cosmos. Because we've taken that word into the English language to mean the universe, everything that exists of a physical nature. Uh, and, and that is the sense in which the word cosmos is used in the Bible. Same sense, because we read here, don't we, that he was in the world and the world was made through him. You look, look back at the beginning of chapter 1 <clears throat> and we read that in the beginning was the word, that is the Lord Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So obviously, the word cosmos is being used in that sense. <clears throat> he was in the world and the world was made by him. Uh, but then you come to this rather difficult statement that the world did not know him. And here's where commentators, including a footnote in the ESV, incidentally, uh, get confused. Because, you see, the word cosmos, although it is used in the Bible in the sense of the universe, everything that was made, is also used in a different way. And when John himself, in his first letter, says friendship with the world is enmity with God, against God, He's using exactly the same word, cosmos, but he's meaning something quite different by it. In the first epistle, several times, in fact, he uses the word cosmos to describe the unbelieving world, the, the large number of people who do not believe in the Lord Jesus, who do not receive him, who do not accept him, uh, it is a world which is against God. And so being a friend of that kind, that, that world, of the unbelieving majority of people, uh, is to be an enemy of God. And some commentators want to make the third use of the word in verse 10 refer to the unbelieving world. He was in the world, yes, that's fine. He came from eternity into this physical cosmos. That's the wonder of the incarnation. He made the world, that's the wonder of the creation, that he was the one who, who, who God used. He was the person of the triune God who was particularly concerned as the architect and manufacturer of the world. But the world didn't know him. The world, world didn't recognize him. And they said, well, that can't possibly mean the cosmos. But in fact, it does mean the cosmos. Because, you see, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, 
And this is the scenery for this act, the Garden of Eden and creation itself, way back there. When they rebelled against God, they took with them that which God had put under them, that is, the natural world. God gave man, when he created man, uh, Adam and Eve, he gave them authority, power over the natural world. He, he, he said, okay, this is your world. You look after it. <clears throat> and when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, disobeyed God, broke the only commandment that they were given, then God sent them out of the Garden of Eden and with, with them, as it were, in their fallen condition, they took the physical world, the cosmos. Now, we know that because Paul in the book of Romans says some very interesting things. In chapter 8, <clears throat> He says this, we're looking at verse 20, uh, two or three verses here. For the creation, same thing as the cosmos or the universe, everything that was made, for the creation was subjected to futility, pointlessness, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That God subjected the physical universe to futility, pointlessness, meaninglessness. He did so, however, in the hope or expectation that, he carries on verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We live in a fallen world, and that doesn't just mean that humanity is fallen from the grace of God and become an enemy of God, it also means that the whole universe is in a state that Paul describes here as the bondage of corruption. Bondage is being tied up, being confined, being imprisoned, if you like. Corruption means death and decay and, and all these unpleasant things that happen in the world. Uh, the universe lies in the bondage of corruption. One day, it's going to be liberated from that. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back into this world, the, the whole universe is going to be changed. It's going to be liberated from the bondage of corruption. And uh, we have a, a wonderful statement way back in, in Isaiah, this is the Old Testament, 800 years, nearly 800 years before Christ came. And there there is a, a lovely passage in chapter 11, 
uh, starting at verse 6, uh, I'm not going to turn to it, uh, but it says, <clears throat> at that time, looking forward to the time when Christ will return and, and deliver the universe from the bondage of corruption, it, it says, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The lion will eat straw like the ox, for the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Nothing is going to do anything, any harm to anybody else or anything else. There shall be no harm, no hurt in all my holy mountain, he says. That's looking all the way forward, beyond our present time, to the time when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and liberates the universe from the bondage of corruption. Now, that is important. It's not generally understood, I find, by Christians. It's very important because it explains such things as natural disasters. It explains the existence of death. It explains so much that is wrong with this world. That people say, well, if God is a good God, a God of love, why are things in such a mess? Why are there natural disasters? Uh, why do innocent people suffer? Well, the answer is we're living in a fallen universe, a fallen cosmos. And it is because the cosmos was fallen that it did not recognize its own creator. That's an amazing concept, difficult perhaps to get your mind around. That the creator of the universe came from eternity into the universe and became a part of that physical universe by taking a human body, human personality, human mind, whilst he still remained the second person of the triune God. And he was there in the universe he created, and that universe didn't recognize him. That's what John is telling us. The universe did not recognize its creator. And perhaps, you know, in the overarching sovereignty of God, that was a necessary thing. Because if the universe, if the creative universe, the inanimate universe, as well as the uh, animate living uh, features or members of the universe, if, if that had recognized Christ as its creator, it would have been almost impossible for him to live in this universe as a human being. That universe would never allow him to get hungry or thirsty. The universe would never allow him to get tired. The universe would never allow him to be nailed to a cross and die couldn't happen. So perhaps in the sovereign power of God, it was necessary that the universe should not recognize its creator, even as he lived within it. Now, these are things perhaps beyond our understanding, but they are practically important because it explains so much that unbelievers say, well, if God is the God of love, why does this happen? Why does that happen? Why do innocent people suffer? Why, 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 why? Well, the answer is we live 
in a fallen universe. We are members of a fallen race and we live in a fallen world. So that's act one of the tragedy of Christmas. The universe did not recognize its own creator. Act two is found in verse 11. Now the scenery has changed. It's a different situation. Uh, we're not uh, in the Garden of Eden and talking about creation and its fall. We are talking here about the time of Christ himself. He came to his own. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now this is where the ESV has a footnote which I, I uh, recommend you to ignore. Uh, which suggests that uh, the first his own means the universe. But no, it's talking entirely about his own people. He came to his own people, Jews, who were expecting a Messiah. They were longing for a Messiah. And his own people rejected him. They did not receive him. Now, you may think that John is exaggerating a little bit. After all, as we read the Gospels, we find that when the Lord Jesus began his ministry in, in Galilee, uh, the age of 30 or thereabouts, he became extremely popular. Oh, I, I know he wasn't accepted in his own hometown, uh, but in Capernaum and other parts uh, around the Sea of Galilee, he was extremely popular. Vast crowds followed him. Uh, people hung upon his very words. They followed him around. They followed him into the wilderness. So he had to feed them uh, because they couldn't have got anywhere to have food. Read the miraculous view of loaves and fishes. And, and the motives they had for following him, well, some followed him because he healed the sick. They brought their diseases, their illnesses to him. And the fact that he healed them meant that there was nothing wrong in them coming to him for healing, physical healing. Uh, others came because they, they had a free meal of those and fishes and they wanted some more. And that wasn't a very good motive. But I think uh, the vast majority of people came to him because they found and saw in the Lord Jesus Christ someone with great authority. And they thought, surely this is the Messiah. They'd been expecting the Messiah. The whole of the Old Testament is full of statements, full of pictures that point forward to one who would come even the Samaritan woman, remember, he, he went into Samaria, and Samaritans weren't Jews even. And the Samaritan woman said, we know that Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll tell us everything. So even the non-Jews were looking forward to the coming of a Messiah. So why does John say the people did not receive him? And the answer is, Oh, what other thing I should have mentioned, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When he rode into Jerusalem, 
at the feast of the Passover, just before six days before the feast of the Passover, he rode in, into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds said, "Wonderful, wonderful! This, this is this is great!" Uh, and they they sang praises to him who comes in the name of the Lord. And palm branches waving, thrown on the on the road before him. A tremendous reception. They said, why does John say they did not receive him? And I think the answer is this. <clears throat> they were all looking for the wrong Messiah. They were looking for somebody who would politically deliver Israel from bondage to the Roman emperor, they were occupied, of course, by Rome at that time, and re-established the throne of David. And I can prove this in a very simple way. Even his disciples had this wrong idea of what he was coming, what he had come to do. There are two scriptures which I can just quote. After, after his crucifixion and resurrection, remember, he joined two disciples who were making their way from Jerusalem back to their home in a village called Emmaus. And the Lord Jesus joined them, but, but they didn't recognize him. They weren't allowed to recognize him. And uh, he said, what's the trouble? What's the problem? Why are you so sad? And the disciples answered uh, that they had crucified the person that they, we, they say, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. Now that word redeem isn't, they weren't using that word redeem in the sense of a spiritual redemption. <clears throat> they were using it in the natural sense, which was to liberate. To liberate by the payment of a price, strictly. But in popular use, it was used uh, simply to mean to liberate. We had hoped it was he who would liberate Israel from Roman dominion, no doubt. But no, of course, he's not going to do that now because he's dead. Well, he, he was, uh, the Lord Jesus was quite short with them, wasn't he? <clears throat> he said, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he opened the scriptures and showed to them the things concerning himself. They didn't know their Bibles. They didn't know their Old Testaments. If they knew them, they didn't understand what they were teaching. And then even after his resurrection had been recognized and, and established, and just before he ascended to heaven, he was talking to the gathered disciples 
And what question did they ask him? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still asking the same question. Will you become the political leader? Will you re-establish the throne of David? Uh, will you deliver Israel from its uh, captivity to Rome? They're asking the same question. Jesus spoke well when he said, uh, just before uh, he went to the cross, I have many things to teach you, to tell you, but you can't bear them yet. But when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will lead you into all truth, for he will take of mine and show it to you. Even at that point, as he was about to ascend to heaven, they were still thinking of Christ as somehow becoming a political savior. Now you see, that is our problem today. There are thousands and thousands of people, perhaps even millions of people, who consider themselves to be Christians, who are still looking for the wrong Messiah. Uh, there are movements, uh, I could spend far too much time on this, I'm not going to. There are movements throughout the world, movements like the church growth movement, movements like the health, wealth and happiness movement, uh, which are looking to Christ not for salvation, but for deliverance from earthly problems, deliverance from difficulties, deliverance from poverty. They want, they want health, they want money, and the people are telling them, well, if you subscribe to my ministry, uh, then uh, God will give you all these things. And if he doesn't, well, it's because you haven't got enough faith. Uh, uh, our friends in Germany tell us that the, the German evangelical churches are absolutely saturated with the church growth movement, a movement that began in the United States in Chicago and under the name of the, the Willow Creek Movement. And, and what's the message of the Willow Creek Movement? What's the message of the church growth movement? Give people what they want and they'll come to your church. So if they want a church to be a social center, fine, give them a social center. If you want it to be a sports club, give them a sports club. If you want it to be a mother and babies group, give it to them. Give them what they want. That'll bring the people in. And because it does. But 25 years after they started the Willow Creek movement, the originators confessed that it didn't work. They had two churches. They had a church occupied by <clears throat> unsaved people who wanted the facilities that the church provided, social facilities, sporting facilities, support facilities, and so on. <clears throat> and then within that, there was a very small group who really understood the gospel, who had a spiritual existence, who were the body of Christ. It was a very small group, and all the rest just came and went. Uh, anyway, as I say, I mustn't spend too much time on this. But even today, there are people who are looking for the wrong Christ, they're looking for a Messiah who will do their bidding, who will meet their needs, who will provide for them, 
They're not looking for the Lord of glory. They're not looking for the one who said, uh, through his disciples, through his uh, apostles, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. They're not looking for the Christ of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not looking for that Christ. They're looking for a different Christ. My dear friends, you are very fortunate, and other churches, like our own, are very fortunate in having a faithful ministry of the word which preaches the genuine gospel that points us to the genuine Messiah. Those who do not look to the true, to the true Messiah are rejecting him. I'm not receiving him. Well, now, the third, <clears throat> and I'm a sorry, the third act of the tragedy of Christmas is found in verse 9, in, in verse, I'm sorry, in verse 12. <clears throat> it's found in verse 12. As John introduces the triumph of Christmas, and he begins by spelling it out, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the triumph of Christmas. But before he can spell that out and develop that idea, he says, who were born not, and then there are three negatives. You don't become a child of God by being born of blood, that is by, by descent, talking about the bloodline of family. You don't become a child of God because you're born into a Christian country, so-called. You don't become a child of God because you're born to or adopted by Christian parents. That's not going to make you a Christian. You're not going to become a child of God uh, because you attend church, because you, you mix with Christians, even listen to preaching, read the Bible. It doesn't make you a Christian. It's not, not a blood. You can't inherit it from anybody. Second thing, not of the will of the flesh. Self-effort. You can't become a child of God by good works. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing good things. In fact, there's everything right with doing good things. But that doesn't make you a child of God. All the efforts that you make add up to absolutely nothing because they're just not good enough. Uh, top ladies, hymn, Rock of Ages, I quoted it a fortnight ago. I'll do so again. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Top lady understood this. I hope we understand it too. And then we're told that there is not of the will of the flesh that we become children of God, nor is it by the will of 
man. No pastor, no preacher, no other person, no counsellor can make us a child of God. So then how do we become a child of God? Well, that comes to our final point, the triumph. And the triumph of Christmas can be stated in this way, that the incarnate, crucified, risen, and glorified Lord Jesus Christ can give us the right to become the children of God. It is as a result of his mission to earth, a result of his becoming man, a result of his living a sinless life as a human being, a result of his dying upon the cross to bear our sins in his own body, a result of his resurrection, demonstrating that his offering to the Father had been accepted, delivered for our transgressions, raised again for our justification. Justification is a declaration by God that we are righteous, not because of ourselves, but because Christ has exchanged his righteousness for our sin. He bore our sin. We are given and made the righteousness of God in him. That is a glorious truth. That the Lord Jesus Christ can make us children of God, can give us the, the right uh, to become the children of God. <clears throat> that word right in the original Greek is a, a, a massive word. I don't mean it's a very long word. I mean its content is fantastic. Uh, there are at least 10, probably more, different English words that can translate the Greek word. The Greek word is not all that unfamiliar to us. It's exousia, and we get our word executive from it. And it can be translated, and is translated in different uh, English translations, as authority, power, and the word I like most of all, and I think is best for my purpose this morning, privilege. He gave us the privilege. The privilege of being sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now, we all have parents. We've all had parents. Some of our parents have died. Uh, but we all have parents. And we have the privilege of receiving from them everything that a parent is supposed to provide for a child. Now, some parents aren't good parents. Uh, but if, if you had perfect parents, and God is a perfect parent, then you would expect from your parents, you would expect love. You would expect protection. You would expect to be fed and clothed. You would expect comfort 
you would expect wisdom, you would expect guidance, you would expect care of every kind. Those are your rights as children of parents, and those are the parents' responsibilities towards you as a child. Now, all that applies to God. And God is a perfect parent. Lord Jesus once said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to you? And on another occasion, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to you? God's giving is, is fantastic. And as Paul told, tells the Philippians in chapter 4, <clears throat> He says, God gives to us, God supplies our need, not just according to our need, but according to his riches in glory by Jesus Christ. God's resources are endless. Sometimes human parents run out of resources. They run out of money, run out of ideas sometimes, run out of patience very often with children. But God doesn't, you see, because his resources are infinite. God never runs out of resources and therefore he can supply to the full every need and do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Uh, you know, Paul writes in Ephesians 3. So how do we acquire this sonship, this being a child of God. How do we actually come to be a child of God? It's given by Christ. He gives us the authority. That's very clear. But what are the qualifications for that? Well, and I'm going to, this is my final point, but it's a very important point. Verse 12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, the statement, who believe in his name, he's talking in the past tense, of course, but uh, um, those who did receive him, who believed in his name. Now, believing in the name of Jesus is an explanation of what it means to receive him. They're not two different things. So we have to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to believe in his name. Well, what does that mean? Well, to believe in the name of Jesus Christ is to believe in Jesus Christ. Generally, a person's name in the Bible represents the person. But Jesus has a particular name, and it is Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel said, for he shall save his people from their sins. So you have to believe in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You have to believe <clears throat> that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. You have to believe that he died upon the cross to bear your sins. Isaiah understood this in Isaiah 53. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. You have to believe that. You have to believe that when he died upon the cross, he bore your sins. And that when he rose from the dead, you were translated, as it were, from death to life. Uh, so much, I could say, a dad, but there isn't time. You have to believe on his name. But then, John gives yet another explanation of how we become children of God. And some people find there's a conflict between his two explanations. Yes, we must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him and you will be saved. But also he says here that those who received him were born of God. Now that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You became the children of your parents by being born to your parents or adopted. Both pictures are used in the Bible. You became a child by being born. Now tell me, did your parents consult you before you were born? Did they say, do you want to be born? Uh, what, what's your view on this matter? Did they? Well, they couldn't, could they? Because you didn't exist until you were born. Well, you were conceived at least. You had no part in being born. When you were born of your parents, you were born of your parents. You didn't know anything about it at the time, or for a significant amount of time after you were born. You had no, no part, no, no, no role in deciding whether to be born or not. And you see, that is true of being born of God, being born of the Spirit. And we read about it, of course, in John chapter 3. Here, here is a man, Nicodemus, who, who believes in Jesus to, up to a point. He says, nobody can do these great works that you're doing unless God is with him. He was a believer in a sense, but he hadn't been born. And so he didn't fully understand. And it is to this old man, very learned man, very educated man, that it is to such a person that Jesus says, you've got to be born again. Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And then he adds a very interesting explanation. He says, <clears throat> the wind blows where it wants to. You don't control it. You don't know, but you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going to. Uh, you, you, you hear and see the effects of the wind. You hear the sound. You see the branches of the trees waving. You know the wind is around. But uh, certainly in those days, they had very 
little idea of where the wind came from, where it goes, and why. And, and Jesus says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The new birth, our being born of the Spirit, is not something in which we have any hand. It is a sovereign work of God. And there are so many scriptures that I could quote if I had time to prove that point. It is a sovereign work of God. And we cannot believe on the Lord Jesus Christ unless we are first born again. Why? Because Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says the natural man, that is the people as they are by nature, human beings as they are by nature, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. They require spiritual eyesight, faith, in order to see them, understand them. And we don't have that by nature. By nature we are blind to the gospel. If our gospel is hid, Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians um, 4 uh, or 5, one of the two. Uh, if, if our gospel is hidden, chapter 4, if our gospel is hidden, it is hidden to those who are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of those that do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of God should shine upon them. But, he says, God has shone in our hearts. We who have been born again, God has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sovereign work of God. You cannot believe on Christ until the Spirit of God has opened your spiritual eyes and until he has shown the nature of the true gospel. Then, then, you can believe in Christ. You can put your trust in him. Let me just finish with a, a, an illustration. because Some of that might have been heavy giving. You have to have both. You have to have the new birth and you have to have faith in Christ. Indeed, <clears throat> you can expand that. You have to have repentance and faith towards God in order to become a child of God. You can't have faith in Christ, you cannot believe in Christ, you cannot believe on his name until you've been born again. Suppose you go into a shop and you buy something that costs three pounds and you hand over a five pound note and the shop assistant gives you a two pound coin as change. And you look at it and you say, oh well, I'm not sure I like this coin. I like the head, but I don't like the tail. I like this side of the coin, but I don't like the other side of the coin. So please give me a coin with just a head on it. And the shop assistant, if they're being polite, would say, um, they only come that way. They're the only two pound coins we have. 
with two sides. You've got to have that or nothing. And so it is with the gospel. We have to have both faith in Christ, which is something that we exercise, and we also have to have the new birth in order to have received the gift of faith and the gift of repentance and been able to believe in Christ. But you must do both. You can't, there are some people, you know, who call themselves Christian. They sit back and say, well, well, uh, salvation, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to trust Christ. I don't have to have to submit to Christ. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. Because God is sovereign. He'll save me if he wants to. And, and if he doesn't want to, he won't save me. I've met people like that. I've conversed with them, discussed with them. They don't want to make any kind of decision of trusting Christ. But then I've met people on the other side who say, uh, oh, <laughs> forget this born again thing. You've got to have faith in Christ and then God will make you born again. Being born again will be a consequence of your faith in Christ. Well, that's the same sort of nonsense. The opposite, if you like. You must have both. You must have the birth of the Spirit that comes sovereignly from God. And you must also make a decision. Being born again enables you, in fact, it compels you to put your faith in Christ. But that is something you must do. I hope that clarifies what is sometimes a point of great division among Christians. Have you been born again? Have you been born of the Spirit? Only God can do that. But when God does do it, he calls upon you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to believe that Christ is everything he said he was, everything the Bible says he was, that Christ has done everything the Bible says he has done, that Christ has made it possible to make you a child of God.